We're going to jump back in uh, to this series on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, listen, I, I want to say um, Trevor and his family are at the beach this morning. Um, and, and so uh, I want to say we miss him because he's not here leading worship or whatever. But I also want to say, uh, yay him, right? He's at the beach, whatever. Good for you. Hope it rains and like it me and no, I'm just kidding. Not really a tsunami. That'd be bad. Um, but first Corinthians 13, we're working through. That was not very loving. Uh, we're actually going to reference that statement uh, in just a minute. This series is called love is. And what I want to do, whether you're visiting today or just as a review, uh, kind of do a, a quick overview of, of how we have filled in the blanks from the text in first Corinthians 13. The, the first thing that we, we filled in the blank with is love is the win. Like it's the only win, it's the primary win. As a matter of fact, uh, my life can look spectacular. I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but love is still the win. And, and even experience the supernatural, have all prophetic giftings, and love is still the win. I can even be really smart, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, right, as though anybody ever could. I could be that smart, and without love, man, that, that's still the only win. And not just spectacular or supernatural or smart. I can even be really spiritual. Have faith to where uh, I can speak to a mountain and it's removed, right? And even with that, without love, still nothing. Love is still the win. And even can be so sacrificial that I give away everything I own, even my life itself, offered up in martyrdom. And love is still the win. And love is not just the win. Love is everything. Like if we get everything else right and get that wrong, we still miss the mark. Love is everything. That's the next blank that we filled in there, Henry. Uh, love is everything that we, we are saying, listen, if we get everything else right, it's, and so, man, if, if I don't have love, it's nothing. Like no purpose, no profit. I gain nothing. Love is everything. And the next blank we filled in, we actually used an emoji to fill it in, and that is love is this otherworldly thing. Like it's not what we're used to. We, we seem really obsessed with love, but a lot of our songs that talk about love and a lot of our poetry that talks about love actually doesn't match with what biblical love looks like or, or how biblical love expresses itself. It's this other thing. As a matter of fact, there's this word that we, we find in the Greek New Testament called agape. Love that doesn't appear in any other Greek writings throughout all of history. It's almost like the, the early church was like, man, we can't use any of, of the common words for love. We gotta make up a new word. It's so otherworldly. And then we started really working through the definition from the text, what love is, beginning in verse four. And, and the two things we've covered so far is that love is patient. Ugh. Why do we have to start there? Like, who wants to be patient? Like, if you met the people that live in my house, like, patience, seriously, that's where I have to start. Not Marisa, just the boys. Um, and my mom. Uh, like, patience, really? And, and that's this internal thing, right? We, we've said you can't fake patience. It's this internal thing, which is where Jesus always begins. He's not about religious behaviorism. He's about life transformation. And so, of course, he would start with the heart. And then the way that that fleshes itself out is love is kind, which is what we talked about last week. That love is not necessarily nice because you can kind of fake niceness, right? Love is kind. It's this genuine, real thing 
that is, again, the work of God from the inside out. So that catches us up to where we've been so far in this series. We're going to speed up. Today we're actually going to cover four words that describe what love is not today. Um, and, and we're only going to fill in one more blank with those four words, but pick up speed a little bit. And so I invite you please to grab your Bible. Uh, if you're a guest today, we always ask you to, if it's where you're at in your spiritual uh, journey, to, to say a creed with us before we open this book um, and to say a prayer together before we dive in. And so if that matches where you're at, then hold up your, your Bible or your device or whatever you're using. And let's declare this together this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 13 again. First Corinthians chapter 13. And I do believe that as God uh, grows our faith in his love, And that that faith transforms our capacity to love. I do believe that he is glorified and we experience true joy. And apart from faith in God's love and apart from growth in the capacity to love, God is not glorified and we're not going to experience any lasting joy. Those things are not at odds. They actually insist on going together. This morning we're going to read verse 4 and the very beginning of verse 5. Because this is one of those places where the, the verse break doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like in the middle of a sentence. So uh, verse number 4, we, we started with this. Love is patient and kind. This morning we pick up with love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. And then the first two words of verse 5, or rude. It is not arrogant or rude. Each of these four descriptors here, these negative descriptors here, we're going to move one by one through kind of unpacking them a little bit. And then we'll fill in our blank for this morning of what that means love is. And the first one there is love does not envy. Love does not envy. Maybe your translation says love is not jealous. That's a decent uh, uh, synonym there, that love doesn't see another person's success or blessing or win and envy that or desire that. Biblical love celebrates the goodness in someone else's life. The reason I started by saying Trevor and his family are at the beach this morning, good for them, was I was setting you up. For that's what it is to envy somebody else's life experience, right? And the reason that social media has become such this life-altering, culture-altering thing is because we are bent towards envy. Many of us scroll not to celebrate, but to go, I can't believe they got to go there. (laughs) Like we need another button that's like, good for you, right? Where's the, because you could say those words. Good for you, right? Or you can be like, good for you, right? Biblical love celebrates goodness in the life of others, not thinks that we deserve it. The heart of envy is another E word, entitlement, which I believe it's an absolute cancer in American culture. We're the most full rotten people who've ever existed in the history of humankind, and yet we're convinced we deserve better and more. 
That's good preaching, whether you like it or not. Like, that's just good. That's just true. We deserve better. I can't believe that they. Love does not envy. Love celebrates and seeks after good for others. Love allows other people to shine, not as jealous of the spotlight. Right? We want to see other people succeed and shine. That's what it is to not envy, to not be jealous, to not be entitled to something that they got. And let me say this about um, this idea of celebrating. And I'm going to I'm going to confess in advance. I'm chasing a little bit of a rabbit here. I'm stepping away from envy a little bit and, and more following the rabbit that celebrates the win in others. I think oftentimes we find it easier to coach than to celebrate. We find it easier to point out in the people in our lives how they could have done something better rather than just celebrate what they just accomplished in their life. Now, the only person who struggles with that, I find coaching far more natural than cheerleading. I find coaching far more natural than celebrating. Often my, hey, good for you, is followed with, but here's how you could have done better. And and the fact is, biblical love doesn't try to fix and and force and criticize. Biblical love celebrates the win. Celebrates good in the lives of others. The next word here, love does not envy, love does not boast. So we're going to watch the text go from heart to to behavior. From heart to behavior. Love is patient, that's the heart. And kind, that's behavior. Love does not envy, that's in the heart. And love does not boast, that's behavior. Right? That's 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 not celebrating others. That's loudly celebrating self. (laughs) That's what boasting is. Yay me. Let me just tell you how awesome I am because you don't seem to know. It's important that I inform you of how worthy I am of your affection and attention right now. Right? That's what boasting is. And listen, we, we all know what it's like to hang out with that person who every story that's told around the dinner table has to be one upped. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, well, that's nothing. One time I, right? And and by the end of the story, you find out, oh, I'm at dinner with James Bond himself. Like this guy has saved the world multiple times. And right, like that's nothing. Let me tell you what I've done. That's boasting. By the way, if you wonder whether or not you're prone to one-upmanship or towards boasting or towards bragging or dominating the conversation with self-talk, I would encourage you in a healthy, non-conflict-filled moment, ask somebody in your life that you trust. Hey, do I talk about myself all the time? Don't ask that in the middle of a fight, (laughs) right? But in a healthy moment... Allow somebody to speak into that. Listen, do I dominate conversations with with stories about me, right? Love does not boast. Love celebrates others, not celebrates self. And a lot of times that that drive to be bigger and greater comes from a couple places. One is it, it comes from wanting to win. Like that one-upmanship that I got to tell a better story is because we want to have the best story. It comes from this this competition thing. Right. And the fact is, love is the win. 
Biblical love doesn't demand on winning. Love is the win. And it seeks, therefore, to help the other person celebrate their win and, and to win in a greater way in their life. I've said this a couple times in this series, and, and I wish so bad I always had this clarity. And the fact is, tomorrow I might not. But today I've got great clarity that, that I believe the win as a Christian parent is that our children know that they are loved and therefore have the capacity to love. That's the win. And, and I think that if, if my sons are like the greatest athletes they have the capacity to be, and they're not convinced that they're loved unconditionally, then there wasn't really a win. If they have the best grades in the school and are valedictorian, they're not going to be. That, that would be not a win if they don't know that they're loved unconditionally, even though there's no chance they're going to be valedictorians. They're still loved, right? I wasn't either. They got my brains. They're totally just going to have to work hard. Um, the win is that our kids know that they're loved and have the capacity to love. And let me say this. As a pastor, let me say this. The win is not that my kids know all the church answers to all the religious questions. It's not that they pass every religious test. It's that they know that they're loved and therefore have the capacity to love. So we had a moment at our dinner table a couple weeks ago. That was pretty awesome. We have good conversations around the dinner table. They can ask whatever they want to ask. We'll talk about whatever they want to talk about. Half of those conversations horrify their mother, which makes it so much more enjoyable and entertaining. Garrett sits down at the table ready to jump into a conversation. Like whoever prayed for the meal, it was like in Jesus' name, amen. And Garrett was like, I demand the floor. I have something to talk about. Okay. They had just discussed that day in his Bible class, and if you're new to church or new to religion, what I'm about to say might not make sense to you, but hold on a second. They had just discussed that day in his Bible class about the historical tension between Calvinism and Arminianism, between predestination and free will. So if you've been around church for a while, you know that literally there's a dividing line between entire denominations around this single topic. Some of the earliest church councils were around this topic of, do we have free will or are we predestined? And I have spent literally hundreds of hours in my theological education studying this topic. I've written about it. Like it's a thing that people who have nothing else to do literally just sit around and fight with other preachers about this. It's a true story. I remember Bible college walking up to a, to a table where a group of guys were yelling at each other about God. Like they were yelling at other image bearers about God. You're an idiot. Like they're fighting with each other. And the whole thing is about how does a person come to know God, right? And so I literally walked up to the table and was like, hey, I want to know when's the last time you told somebody far from God that Jesus loves them. And I just walked away, right? It's like, boom, mic drop. But that's just because I didn't know the answer to any other questions. <laughs> But I've studied a lot about this, whatever. I've got opinions. We can talk about it later. Garrett's first introduced to this topic in 11th grade. He was losing his mind over the fact that his pastor dad, yes, that's what he called me, had never talked to him about this before. 
This is a thing. How have you never talked to me about this? We talk about everything. You've never talked to me about the historical ramifications of Calvinism and Arminianism. Don't you have an opinion about this? Yes, son. I've spent a lot of time studying this, reading about this. And so we had this great conversation and it didn't end with thank you, father, for your insights, which is how the conversation should have ended. The conversation ended with seriously, and you've never told me that before. But my mission in, in life is not that my sons win arguments. It's that they know that they're loved radically and unconditionally by a Heavenly Father. And that that love gives them the capacity to love other people. And I know there's a whole lot of stuff I get wrong on the daily when it comes to parenting. But I believe at the end of the day, helping them boast religiously is not on the list of goals. It's not, it's not the objective. So love does not envy or boast. It is not, next, arrogant. So we go back to the heart thing again, right? We're bouncing back and forth between uh, heart and behavior. Envy starts in the heart. Boasting comes out of the mouth. Actually, the whole body language, the whole bravado. Arrogance is in the heart. It really, what, what it is, is boasting is verbal self-centeredness. And arrogance is internal self-centeredness. The, the King James Version here says puffed up. Which is an awesome translation. That's literally what the Greek word means here. It means filled up with air. An inflated self-absorption. But there's two sides of that coin. The, the one that we're familiar with is like the big-headed, yeah, full of hot air, full of self, always boasting. Okay, we can see that kind of arrogance. And that kind of arrogance, honestly, is, is, is unhealthy, and it, but it's easy to see. Like, it's easy to diagnose that kind of I'm awesome.com, like, check me out. That, that's easy to see. But there's another kind of self-absorption and self-centeredness that actually masks itself as humility. I'm the worst. That's just as deadly as I'm the best. Because the conversation centers on the same thing. Me. It's all about me. And, and love that seeks itself is not biblical love. Love that's after feeling better. Here's the deal. I'm going to be honest with you. Man, if I don't feel good about myself, it is really hard to help other people feel good about themselves. And a lot of us navigate every relationship that we're in with how do we feel about ourselves because this person is in our life. The primary objective of a Christian marriage is not to help us feel better about ourselves. But every person I know got into that relationship because they loved how that person made them feel, which is healthy, by the way. If you're like, man, this person makes me feel like a complete loser. I should marry them. No, 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 no. We all are drawn into the relationship because we like how they make us feel. But that's like puppy love, right? 
that's immature love. At some point in time, that's got to grow into this enduring love that says the primary objective in my marriage is not for you to make me feel better about me. That, that is, even with a low self-esteem, that is high self-centeredness. The primary objective in a friendship is not for that friend to make you feel better about you. One of the reasons that we bail so quick on marriages in our culture is as soon as that person makes us feel bad, we're like, I'm done with you. As soon as we, we, we feel bad in a friendship, we're like, oh, well, they, they hurt my feelings. I'm out. Listen, the primary objective in human relationships is not you to feel better about you. Your, your boss's job, like on your boss's job description, nowhere does it say make sure everybody who works for me feels great about themselves at the end of the day. <laughs> we touched a nerve there. It's not their job. And that's not how it works. That's actually putting self at the center of a story. And this is the story of God. And we're doing life with broken people. And so if love can't endure those difficult times and the disappointments and the conflict, then then it's going to be really fragile. It's going to be really short-lived. Because at its heart, it's really centered on self. Love is not arrogant. Or... The next word and the the final word for this morning in the text is or rude, right? Everybody that's my age is probably thinking of Michelle Tanner right now. How rude, right? Yeah, I just dated myself, whatever. Your translation might say um, is not arrogant and does not dishonor. Um. This idea of rude isn't just grumpy. It's not forgetting to hold the door. Again, that, that's niceness stuff. That's surface level stuff. It's this idea of we, we act in a way that dishonors another person. Love doesn't do that. Love, in, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor, he says. Love seeks to honor another. Dishonor looks for flaws in other people so that we can feel better about ourselves. Honor seeks to help other people to feel better about how loved they are by a holy God. So biblical love, and I've said this for the last several weeks, it begins by knowing that we are already loved. Love is not something we're working to achieve or to win or to, to, to approve for. Literally, the the scriptures tell us that in Jesus, we've been seated in heavenly places with him. So life is not about, oh, I feel so down and low and bad about myself. I need something to make me feel better about me. The the gospel begins through this faith that, no, I'm, I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so my life's goal, because I've been seated here is to an extend a hand to people who feel low about themselves and invite them and invite them into the love of a holy God. But when I'm so wrecked with self-centered loathing and I see other people that I think are thriving, it, I can either be uplifted by the love of God or I can tear them down and think I'm feeling better about myself. 
99% of the, the unkindness that we see in the hearts of other people isn't about tearing them down. It's about trying to lift yourself up and there's a better way. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't need to tear you down to feel better. I want to seek to, to honor you because here's how a person hear me church. Here's how a person begins to believe that they're loved. It's by being loved by somebody who bears the image of God. Love does not dishonor. How, how could biblical love be dishonor? It, it's seeking to call out in someone just a glimpse of how we believe God sees them. If the people in our circle, if the people in our life believe a little more that they're as loved as God says so, that's a win. Love celebrates a person so that they feel better. Not about that they're winning at life, but that they feel better about how loved they are. Last week I talked about what's the opposite of kindness. Is it meanness or is it shame? That's the heart of dishonor. Dishonor is I want to shame you. I want to point out all of your faults. I want to point out all of your failures. And I got to tell you, religion is great at that. But the gospel says, listen, you're more busted up than you thought you were, and you're more loved than you could possibly imagine. And we can tell by how we're navigating life, by when there is confrontation in marriage, when we disagree, is the objective... I want to fix my spouse or is the objective I want to restore this relationship in parenting is the objective I want to fix my kid or is it I want to restore wholeness and goodness here in this relationship. Here's how you can tell what the objective is by the tone is the tone honoring or is the tone shaming. And if I'm parenting out of a low self-esteem, I'm probably going to shame my kids a lot. If I'm trying to exist in a marriage through this low view of self without faith in the gospel, I'm probably going to shame my spouse a lot. It's how I feel better about myself. Love, biblical love does not dishonor. So we fill in the blank finally this way this morning. Love is selfless. Love says I'm not the center of the story. And so I want to love you well. Less of self. Again, sometimes that false version of humility is I think about self more, just really negative. That's why I like the phrase self-less. That I have a high view of the gospel, which means I don't need you to save me. I don't need you to heal my wounds. I've met Jesus. And so far in one verse, we've already seen that there's a repeated theme in biblical love, and it is this. Hear me, friend. It's death to self. The repeated theme of biblical love is less of me and more of him. Which only makes sense if he's love, right? <laughs> then there's got to be more of him. And for there to be more of him, there's got to be less of me. I know I've said this quote a lot, but it's one of my favorite quotes ever from Bob Goff. He says this, 
loving people the way Jesus did means constantly taking cuts to the back of the line. Listen, we've we got a lot of little kids on this campus every day. Pretty much any given day on this campus, you can see two kids fighting about who cut in line. And never, ever in 12 years of being on this hill have I ever seen two kids fighting about who got to the back of the line first. They're always fighting about who's supposed to be in front. Man, that, that's just our natural bent, isn't it? Nobody had to teach those kids how to do that. He cut in front of me. That's just natural. They're good at it from, from birth. But, but this kind of biblical love is, I'm cutting to the back of the line. I want to push you forward on this journey. I want to meet you at your pace and at your place and help you move forward. It's a race to the back of the line. It's selfless. Last week we talked a little bit about, as we were talking about the the connection between patience and kindness, we talked a little bit about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. And you don't have to turn there, but I want to park there for just a few minutes. Hang with me a few more minutes. We're going to get into some texts for a minute that might be familiar to you if you've been around church your whole life. But the Apostle Paul writing to a different church, church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5 verse 12, he says this, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we see this idea that, man, the mission in life is to love people. The fulfillment of the whole law, according to Jesus. And so Jesus has not set us free. As Americans, we love that. That we've been set free. We're all about freedom. We will blow stuff up, eat barbecue, and celebrate freedom any day of the week, right? But the freedom wasn't for us. He set us free so that we now have the capacity to love in a vulnerable way and in a faithful way. So we love people. Skip down to verse number 16. It says this, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify The desires of the flesh. I want to draw this sharp distinction here in Galatians chapter 5 between the life of the spirit and the life of the flesh. The apostle Paul is painting two very different ways to live life. And I want you to hear me this morning. He's not giving a third path, a middle road. We're living life in the spirit or we're living life in the flesh. And he begins to describe what life in the flesh looks like. And for church people, we're like, oh, this is terrible. I'm glad none of this describes me. Because he starts describing the the works of the flesh or the, the life of the flesh. And he talks about sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery, for crying out loud. Right? Like, oh, well, I am, I'm not a sorcerer, so clearly I'm walking in the Spirit. Right? He He ends the list... With drunkenness and orgies. This is a pretty toxic list, right? And right smack dab in the center of the list is jealousy, rivalry, and envy. That's on the orgy list? Really? That's the works of the flesh. Then he describes what happens when we're living in the Spirit. The fruit that the Spirit bears out in us is love, joy, peace, 
And then what we talked about for the last two weeks, patience and kindness. In contrast to this flesh life, there's this spirit life that begins and ends in the love of God being worked out through us. Envy is mentioned again at the end of that chapter, but I want you to, to look with me at verse number 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Last week I told you that, that patience is costly. It's so costly it demands the death of self. It demands crucifixion. And the fact is many of the hardships that we're facing in life is God mercifully and lovingly putting to death flesh stuff that will ultimately kill you and rob from you the capacity to love others. Because here's the thing about crucifixion. My best friend said this to me this week. He said nobody ever committed suicide by crucifixion. You can't nail yourself to a cross. God's placed people in your life that are slowly giving you the opportunity to die to self every day. Because he wants you to walk less in you and more in him. 8 week we've said this, we live in a culture that's, that's obsessed with love. The culture would say love is God, right? Small g. Love is God. By the way, to such a degree, you see such selfishness in the modern definition of love. When, when it comes to, to the joining together in the sexual union, you listen to the way that that's talked about in the modern picture of love. And it, it, it's statements like, did you get you some? Get? Taking? You? You? It's twice in the, did you get you some? That's not the biblical picture of love. Love is the the giving of ourselves to another person. Sacrificial. Selfless. Love isn't our God. Our God is love. Again and again, this points to Jesus. And it's obvious to see how Jesus would be patient with busted up people like us. And goodness, it's been obvious that he's been kind to me. And maybe this morning when we think of this humility and this selflessness, maybe it's harder for us to see Jesus in that. Like if anybody had a reason to not be very humble, right? Like Jesus, hashtag humble brag. I'm Jesus, right? Like surely selfless doesn't fit the bill. This morning I would take you to to one other passage that again, a lot of you I know are familiar with. Philippians chapter 2. I just want to read this whole passage this morning. Would, would you engage your heart with the word of God as I read it over us this morning? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That phrase by itself deals with all four bullet points we've dealt with about love this morning. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. That's honor. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he, God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If he emptied himself of himself, So that he could empower us. So that his love could transform us. To set us free from ourselves. So that we could receive his love through his death on the cross. So that we might have the capacity to love unlovely people. To not walk in this taker position where we need people to approve of us. And make us feel better about ourselves and affirm us but where we can sacrificially love others because we're secure in God's love for us. I'll end with this this morning. There's a theologian that many of you have probably never heard of, but if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've had your thinking influenced by him. His name's Karl Barth. Considered to be one of the most influential theologians of recent history. And and while you probably haven't heard of him, probably you've been influenced by him. This brilliant, influential man was asked once, towards the end of his life, what's the most significant, life-changing, perspective-altering theological truth you've ever discovered? And he paused for a moment and he said this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. (laughs) One of the greatest theological minds in recent history said, you can fill every volume in every book, in every library, in every concordance, and at the end of the day, we are still transformed and changed by this truth. We are loved. We are loved. We are radically, sacrificially, unconditionally, holy, and completely and scandalously loved by a holy God. Which means we're free from being takers, from being oriented around the little story of self, so we don't envy somebody else's blessings or favor. We celebrate that. We don't have to boast so that people will see us as the savior or the hero of any story. We don't have to, in the inside, be oriented around self, whether that's an inflated view of self or a really low view of self. It's just a bigger view of God. And we don't walk in this harmful, abusive rudeness 
we're seeking to honor others because we've been transformed by the love of God. You're loved this morning. And you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to earn. You have nothing to get right, figure out, fix for you to be lovely. You're loved because God chooses to love you. And at the end of the day, either we believe that and that's enough, or we better go get us some. This morning, I just want you to know you're loved.